let my wife Vanessa say hi for sure. Hi. Thanks for having us. Um, it's always such a pleasure to be up here with uh, Kara and Mark. And I always come back home filled. And so um, I got some stuff from Kara, all of her art and stuff. I, the Lord has placed upon my heart to share with our ladies and our children. So I'm going to take some of that back home. So thank you for that. And just know that what is going on here, um, it is felt in Los Angeles. And uh, your leaders, all your leaders, are blessings uh, to Jody, myself, and the body down in East Los Angeles. So thank you for, for who you are. Thank you. I, 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 been, I have been praying for about a week for you, and I just wanted to share with you. Uh, actually, it goes, it goes with what Kara spoke about today, just about praise and how praise is a weapon. Um, I began speaking to the Lord about you guys maybe a few weeks back, but this week he began speaking. And he... Um, from being attacked in a dream and using praise as a weapon to God um, speaking to me personally about uh, praise, how we, it unifies people. If anything, uh, when, you, when we come together, if you want unity, you're going to be praising the Lord. And so here's a scripture um, that I just want to speak to you about or, or share with you um, and let it fall on your heart however it does. Um, it's uh, Psalm 62, verses 5 through 8. And this is what I've been meditating on for the past two weeks. And I'll just highlight, um, uh, well, I've been reading the whole chapter, but these are the things that have been highlighted um, on my heart for you. Uh, verse 5, it says, For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. So your soul's not waiting for anybody else. It's not looking for anyone else or anything else to fill, um, to be filled. They're looking for God alone. It's looking for God alone. For my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. Say, I shall not be shaken. It's really cool to read it, but it's harder to believe it. Um, I, I find it harder to believe sometimes. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. Pour out your heart. It's saying right there, you're allowed to be vulnerable. You're allowed to talk to the Lord about the, the, the deepest parts of your being and what you need and what you desire and what you crave from the Lord. God is, I'm sorry, pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. And I just, I just want to pray that over you. I want, I want you to know that you're important to God and that because we have him in us and because of what he did for us on that cross, we are unshakable. And, you know, he never, he never promised that we wouldn't go through the fire or the flood, but he said, I will never let them burn you, and I will never let those waves overcome you. That's what it means to be unshakable. But we're unshakable when we take refuge. Actually, we come underneath our Father. So I'm going to pray that over you. Um, if you allow me, can I, can I do that? So, Lord, thank you for um, who you are. Thank you for being bigger than what, we'd ever, what we could ever imagine. Thank you for sending your one and only son uh, to pay for our debts and to give his life for us because you love us. Father, we can take refuge in you because we know your heart towards us. We can take refuge in you because you, you are good. So, Lord, I just pray that we would open up our hearts and we would pour our hearts out to you, that we would attach ourselves to you and be nourished to you like never before in this next season. Father, prepare us for what's to come. 
for all the people that are coming through these doors, for the new ones. Let them come to a place of refuge. I pray, God, that your presence would reside in your people's hearts and minds at all times, and nothing else would fill your place in their hearts but you. I pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. right i'm gonna just preface my talk before we even get started um i know you guys normally get out of here at a certain time and i'm gonna do everything that i can to make to make that happen um but at the end of the day i really believe the lord has something for this church and so um buckle up you guys cool with that you sure all right Mark asked me for, for a title of this message, and I, I don't know what the title is. Uh, you guys can add a title to it when you're able, but I want to start with this. Uh, I'm not a statistics guy. I'm not a numbers guy. Uh, we, we've done, like, those personality tests and all that kind of stuff, and we did one in Chicago that was, it was um, called Head, Heart, and Gut, and it's kind of like how you engage the world around you. With your head, you know, if, you, if you're intellectual and you calculate or... With your heart, you know, you feel things and you, um, I am neither of those two. I am a gut. Um, and I know I look like a gut, but I'm also, um, I, I lead with my gut. And so, uh, but these numbers stand out to me and they do something to my gut when I read them. According to Lifeway Research, 55% of Christians say that they have not shared with others how to become a Christian. 55%. That's more than half of Christians have not shared with others how to become a Christian, have not even been able to share how they became a Christian. And and that is, to me, the most heartbreaking number I have read in a long time. I mean, I know there's all kinds of things happening in the world today, all kinds of numbers that we are focused on as as a nation, as a culture, with the pandemic, all of these kind of things. There's obviously things that are happening on this planet today that are affecting life and death, but friends, we're speaking about eternity. And 55% of us who have the hope of glory that only comes through Jesus Christ have not shared how others can share in that same hope. If that number holds true across the church, then, then I really believe that we as a church have some serious things to ask ourselves. We have some serious questions to ask ourselves And it's very easy for us to ask others. It's very easy for us to look at the leadership of a church. It's very easy for us to look at other ministries or those people. But I believe as the church, we have to ask ourselves some very serious questions. I think we all know the cultural arguments when it comes to evangelism and sharing Jesus and the cultural fears, right? There's cultural fears. It it, it is not popular to, to share Jesus with the world around us today. I mean, I live in Los Angeles, California. I know as the world looks at our state and even the region that I live in, we are considered one of the most liberal places on the planet. And, and, and even with, the, with that liberalism comes this, this understanding that it is not okay to speak about Jesus, religion, and all of those kind of things. But I'm telling you, under God's economy, I have full permission to speak the name of Jesus in Los Angeles, California, without any fear, without any inhibitions. I mean, I I just think of the name of our city, Los Angeles, City of Angels. I have people ask me all the time, like, how do you guys live there? 
We live there because God called us there. And, and, and as much as I do love California, I'm born and raised in California, in Los Angeles, as much as I love the region, you know, kind of I have this personal connection to it, God has called me to a place. And when God has called me to a place, then my heart beats for that place as God's heart beats for that place. If I was in Erie, Colorado, I would be the biggest, I don't know what you guys call yourselves in Erie, the, the Tigers, <laughs> the Erians. I don't know what you call it, but I would be the biggest one of those. I would have Erie tattooed on my body. I would wear an Erie t-shirt. I would do, because when God calls you to a place, the Bible tells us that God ordains the times and places for men to dwell. I shared this with your leadership team on, on Friday, that if God is building only one thing here on this earth, and that's the church, and if he has ordained the times and places for men to dwell, then what was happening here in our local church is the most exciting thing that is happening on the planet. Think about it. If you have been called to a local church in a region that God has ordained under heaven, then this should be the most exciting thing that is happening on the planet. And my question to you is, is it? Is it? I think when it comes to evangelism, we can, we can all agree that the dude on the corner, you know, with a megaphone, you know, preaching. I mean, have you ever, I don't know if you've ever seen that. It's in, you see it in Los Angeles a lot. You know, turn or burn or, you know, all these kind of you know, things on the corner. I think we can all agree that that's not effective. And we might even agree that, hey, you know, that, you know I don't want to be that kind of guy. But I love what D.L. Moody says. And D.L. Moody said this once. He said, it's clear that you don't like my way of doing evangelism. You raise some good points, frankly. And sometimes I don't like my way of doing evangelism. But I like my way of doing it better than your way of not doing it. I think somehow in, 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 in the psyche of the church, we have set aside this gift of evangelism as just that, a gift and not a mandate. And I believe that as a church, we have to, to have a paradigm shift of how we, we view evangelism and the mandate on the church. Because if, if, if evangelism is a gift, if it's just a gifting, then I think what most people do with giftings when it comes to the things of God is we are very selective about the gifts that we want. Just think about it. There's a, there's a plethora of gifts that God gives us. There's the charismatic gifts that we get. And you, know, you just think about you know, speaking in tongues and prophesying and, and words of knowledge and words of wisdom. And, and we put all of those things and we just like, yeah, I'm not comfortable with that one, so I won't use that one. And I'm not sure about that one, so I don't really want to mess with that. I don't understand it that much. And we place evangelism on that same table. Like, ah, oh, you know, I'm not, I'm not a, I'm an, I'm an introvert. I'm not an extrovert. Evangelism is not an introverted or extroverted uh, um, personality type uh, uh, um, thing that we can apply. And, and even when it comes to introverts and extroverts, I, I know sometimes introverts believe that, like, you know, I just don't like people. <laughs> That's not the case. It just means their batteries drain a whole lot faster. And so they need to spend a whole lot more time recharging their batteries. And it's just not an introverted or extroverted gifting. This is a mandate from God for his church. And I think sometimes when we, when we encounter this mature gift of evangelism in the church, it's like, it's like seeing a unicorn. Like, oh, wow. 
man, an evangelist, that guy is on fire, right? We say those kind of things, right? He's sold out for Jesus or, you know, man, she's so bold. She's fearless. And my question for us, my question to myself is, shouldn't we all be? Shouldn't we all be sold out? Shouldn't we all be on fire? Shouldn't we all be emboldened? Shouldn't we all be fearless? Shouldn't we all be? Hasn't Jesus given us every reason to be? God has given us every reason to be excited, not only about his message, but this mission that has been given to the church, right? When we think about the will of God, often when I, when I minister into churches and when I speak with leaders, one-on-one or even like when I invited in, people are like, hey, we just want to um, you know, help people understand their calling. And, and you know, how many of you have just had that big question? I just don't know what my calling is. I don't know what the will of God for my life is. It's this big kind of looming question. And honestly, friends, I want to do a whole lot to satisfy that for you this morning. Matthew 18, 14 says this. In the same way, it is not my heavenly Father's will. Can you say will? Will that even one of these little ones should perish. When it comes to the Father's will, salvation is at the forefront of our Father's mind. It is not our Father's will that one person should perish. And as followers of Jesus, as children of God, I believe that we, if we are believing that we are in, 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 a, in a monarchy, or some people would call it a theocracy, where he is God and what he says goes, that the Father's will is adopted by his children. It is not the Father's will that one person should perish. And my question for us is how does that will affect our daily lives? It is not the Father's will that one person should perish. Jesus' earthly mission embodied his Father's will. Listen, Luke chapter 19, verse 10 says this, For the Son of Man... Jesus came to seek and save those who were lost. What did Jesus come to do? To seek and save those who were lost. And then Jesus did something crazy. He did something that you and I probably would have never done. He chose 12 unlearned, ordinary men and commissioned them to continue the work that he started here on this planet that was that embodied the will of his Father. It was his Father's will that not one should perish. Jesus came to the earth to seek and save the lost. And then in Matthew chapter 28, Jesus commissioned his disciples, listen friends, to do the same. You guys would know this as the Great Commission. Matthew chapter 28 verse 18 says this, Jesus came and he told his disciples, I have been given all authority. Can you say all authority? I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go, can you say go? Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach these new disciples to obey all the commands that I have given you, and be sure of this, I am with you always, even till the end of the age. We have been given this commissioning, and I like to call it a co-mission, because this is Jesus' mission that we get to be a part of. It's like being a co-pilot. Jesus is flying. We get to be in that cockpit next to him, completing the mission with him. 
And Jesus tells us of this beautiful thing that he is with us always. He assures us while we are on this mission that we have his presence. And then Acts chapter 1.8, we see that Jesus assures us of his power. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be. Can you say will be? I don't know. I kind of read that in, in, in my Yoda voice. You will be. You will be my witnesses. Listen, and this is what being a witness is. Telling people about me everywhere. Telling people about me everywhere. What does a witness do? He testifies of what he has seen. You get called into a court and you got to be a witness. You raise your hand before God. You swear to God that you are going to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. You are a witness to what you have seen. You can't be a witness of anything else. If, you, if, you, if you're a witness to anything you have not seen, then you're being a false witness. We're to, call, we're to be a witness and tell people about Jesus everywhere. And this is how he describes it. Jerusalem, Erie, Colorado, to Judea, the greater Denver area, to Samaria, all of Colorado, to the ends of the earth, to the ends of the earth. You will be my witnesses. And so we've been assured of his presence and we've been assured of his power. We have these two things that, that God has given us in order to be these types of witnesses. So what's missing? What, what's missing for you and I? What's missing for his church? What's m- missing for that 55% of Christians who have not told someone else about Jesus? What's missing? I believe it's a simple word, but it's, 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 it's a significant word. And that word is obedience. It's obedience. In that same passage above, Matthew chapter 28, verse 20, it says, teach these new disciples to obey all of the commands that I have given you. Now, I know as, as Americans, that word obey is not a nice word. We don't like that word. Like, be, being a Marine, I didn't understand that word and had to be trained to understand that word. But that word means so much when it comes to life and death situations. When it comes to life and death situations, when it, when it comes to saving lives and instant obedience to orders means if you don't obey, someone dies. And if you do obey, someone's life is saved. It becomes really clear how important obedience is. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands that I have given you. And listen, friends, one of those commands is that great commission to go into all the world and preach the gospel, make disciples. I think there needs to be a paradigm shift in the church today. I honestly think there needs to be a paradigm shift in the church today around this thing of evangelism. And I think the only way that we have, we're going to be able to do that is if we allow heaven to invade our entire psyche around this thing our entire understanding around evangelism and what this means. I think we need heaven's perspective more than ever when it comes to evangelism. I see we see this in, in, in Luke chapter 15. I'm going to um, gloss over these, these three um, quick parables that Jesus gives us in Luke 15. In Luke 15 chapter um, 7, we're going to get a bit of heaven's perspective on evangelism 
Luke 15, verse 7, we see the, um, the well, in, this, in Luke 15, we see the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. How many of you know these parables? And so with the lost sheep, we see this in Luke 15, 7. It says, in the same way, there is more joy. Can you say more joy? There is more joy in heaven. We're getting heaven's perspective now from Jesus. There is more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over 99 others who are righteous and haven't strayed away. Friends, I don't know about you, but as I allow that to penetrate my heart, there is, there is a priority in heaven around the sinner. There is more joy in heaven over one sinner who comes to repentance than 99 of us who show up to church on Sunday, every Sunday, and worship Jesus. I, I know I like to think that when I show up to church on Sunday, all heaven rejoices in like, ah, he's at church on Sunday. He made, and he made 915 prayer, extra credit. And yet the Bible tells us there's more joy. There's more joy when one sinner comes to heaven. I don't know about you, but that's a paradigm-shifting understanding. That there's a priority in heaven on the sinner. In verse 10, we, we, we read the same understanding. Um, um, this is about the lost coin. In the same way, there is joy in the presence of God and his angels, even when one sinner repents. The value of heavens there, it, it, is indicated by God's eye is on the sinner. Heaven's attention is on the sinner. I mean, I just, I mean, I, I get these prophetic pictures and I just, I just think of Jesus on the throne and, and, and how he's observing and how, how he's just watching what is happening on this planet. And the thing I believe that causes him to sit up from his throne and look down is when sinners come to know him. We see in, in Luke chapter 15, 32, this understanding of the lost son coming back. And you guys might know this as a prodigal son. And it says this, we had to celebrate. And let me give you a little background on this. If you remember, the, the oldest son of, of this father says, Father, I want my inheritance now. And if you know anything about the Jewish culture, what the prodigal son was telling his father is, I wish you were dead. Please give me my inheritance. That's culturally what he was asking. It was a dishonorable thing to ask for your inheritance before your father died. And so he asked for his inheritance. The father gave the son his inheritance. And then we understand that the son went out and, and, and gave his life to loose living. Now, I don't know what loose living was for you, but I know what it was for me, so you can imagine what that looked like. And then this Jewish son found himself in the worst possible scenario, after he wasted all his money, after all of his loose living, he found a Jewish boy, found himself in a pig pen. In a pen full of swine. And he came to his senses, the Bible says, and he says, man, I'm here eating, eating slop from these pigs. Even the servants in my father's house house eat better than this. I'm going to go back to my father and I'm going to ask for his forgiveness and I'm going to offer myself back to him as a servant. 
And as the son goes back to the father, we, we know the story that the father is waiting and looking on the horizon for his son to return. And his, when his son returns, the father sees him in the distance. And the Bible says the father runs to him. And as he runs to him, he takes off his robe and he places it on his son and he takes off the family ring and he puts it on his son and he tells the servants, my son has come home. Go and get the fattest cow. We are about to make some carne asada. (laughs) And then something happens. The son who had been with the father The son who had been faithful. The son who remained in the father's house and never dishonored his father and never asked for his inheritance. He begins to take issue with the attention that is being given to this lost son. And he tells the father, how is it that you are giving him your robe and and, and the family ring and you're you're killing the the fattest cow to to, to offer a celebration to this son who has dishonored you and I have been here and I have been faithful. Like, How does that work? Verse 32, the father says this, we had to celebrate this happy day for your brother was dead and has come to life. Your brother was dead and has come to life. He was lost, but now he is found. You see, salvation is not about making bad people good. It's about making dead people alive. It's not about this earthly thing, although we get to experience God on this planet. It is about far more. It's about this hope of glory that only comes through Christ Jesus. And I think we have this finite understanding about this because if we didn't have a finite understanding, I think the urgency in our hearts would be far greater about this thing called evangelism. Romans chapter 10 verse 14 says this, but how can they call on him to save them unless they believe in him? And how can they believe in him if they have never heard about him and how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? How? How will this world hear about Jesus? I mean, we in the church, we're always speaking about, there's an urgency. Jesus is coming back soon. And so we're talking about the second coming and the second coming. But friends, there are people on this planet who haven't even heard of his first coming. William Craig says this about evangelism. He says, successful evangelism involves not only harvesting, I think sometimes we are so consumed with the results, right? And we're so consumed with the results. It's like, I'm, I'm afraid we're going to get rejected. I'm, I'm afraid I'm going to share Jesus and they're just going to shut me down. I'm afraid I'm going to share Jesus, step out on a limb, share Jesus, and they're just going to say, kick rocks. I don't want anything to do with that Jesus. So William Craig says, listen, successful evangelism involves not only harvesting. Don't be worried about the results alone. But listen to this but sowing and watering. We must never take that, uh, we must never think that because a non-believer remained unconvinced by our case that our apologetic has failed. For one encounter is not the end of the story. The Bible tells us some plants, some water, but it's God who brings the increase. It's God who brings the increase. So I I just want to read a quick lesson from Jesus in Scripture. Um, This story begins 
with, with Jesus at a banquet uh, where all his disciples, I mean, they're always just knuckleheads. You guys, and if you don't read the knuckleheadness amongst the disciples, there's a lot of knuckleheadness there. And I picture myself in that group all the time because I'm a knucklehead. And so is your pastor, if you don't know that. Um, and so, so Jesus is at, at, at this feast, right? And his knucklehead disciples are fighting, listen, friends, about their position at the table. I mean, they're fighting at their position, fighting for me. Who's going to be the greatest? And all this crazy up. And I want to sit by Jesus. No, I want to sit by Jesus. All this stuff, right? Just positional thinking. And so Jesus, he, he gives them this, this kind of lesson in manners almost. Listen to this. He says, then he turned to his host and he says, when you put on a luncheon or a banquet, he said, don't just invite your friends and brothers and relatives and rich neighbors for they'll just invite you back and then you have your only reward, right? Instead, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, blind. Then at the resurrection of the righteous, God will reward you for inviting those who could not repay you. And so they're worried about their position at the table. And Jesus is like, listen, I don't want you to worry about your position at the table. I want you to worry about who you're inviting to the table. I want you to worry about who you're inviting to the table. And I don't want you to just worry or invite the people who normally sit at the table. I want you to invite the people who aren't normally at this table. If, it's, you were to, if we were to summarize this portion of Scripture, right, the lesson that Jesus is giving is don't worry about your position, but worry about the invitation. Mark shared something really, really um, uh, key last night with the youth about this thing called invitation, right? Can you say invitation? If we could summarize those few verses that I just read, we could be summarized by that. Invitation is more than position. Invitation is more than my seat at the table, Right? So listen to this. After Jesus says this, a man says this. Hearing this, a man sitting at the table with Jesus exclaimed, man, what a blessing it will be to attend a banquet at God's kingdom. This dude's still thinking about his place at the table. Jesus is like, listen, don't worry about where you're going to sit. Worry about inviting people. And this guy's like, just, I mean, just totally missed. He's like, man, I can't wait to sit at that table. <laughs> So then Jesus has to go deeper into this lesson. And I don't know about you. Have you ever like been in class and then one of those guys asks the teacher a, a, a question that just sets him off on a whole other tangent? And you're just like, dude, we were out of here and now we got to stay because you opened your mouth. Like, right? That's this guy, right? This guy just says something. Jesus is like, oh, you're still not getting it. Okay. Let me elaborate on what I just said, right? Verse 16, Jesus replied with this story. So he didn't, he, didn't, he didn't correct him, and he didn't, you know, I would have like, dude, I just told you not to worry about your position at the table, and you're still worried about it. Jesus said, okay, let me tell you another story. Verse 16, a man prepared a great feast and sent out many invitations. Can you say invitations? When the banquet was ready, he sent out his servant to tell the guests, come, the banquet is ready. But they all began to make excuses. And one said, I've just bought a field and I must inspect it. Please excuse me. Rejection, right? Another said, I've just bought five oxen and I want to try them out. Please excuse me. Rejection. 
Another said, I just got married, so I can't come. Rejection. Then the servants returned and told his master what they had said, and his master was furious. And he said, go quickly. Go quickly into the streets and the alleys of the town and invite the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame. And this is what's amazing about this. The master's response to, to rejection wasn't shut it all down. Forget about it. We're not even going to have a feast anymore, these dumb people. But friends, this is what happens with evangelism. We get rejected, we get rejected, we get rejected, and this is how we, we shut it down. Forget it. I'm not giving out any more invitations. They don't want to show up. It's on them. They want to burn in hell. Oh, well, whatever. <laughs> Friends, that's how nonchalant we are about this. It wasn't the master's heart to shut it all down. This is what the master said in verse 22. After the servants had done this, he reported, there's still room for more. They went into the, to the highways. They went to get the crippled, the poor, the blind, the lame, and there's still room for more. So his master said, go into the country lanes and behind the hedges and listen to this, friends, and urge anyone you can find to come so that the house will be full. Urge anyone that you can find to come so that the Lord's house will be full. For none of those who I first invited will even get the smallest taste of the banquet. And obviously we know in retrospect, theologically, that the first understanding of this was the Jews. The Jews who first heard this gospel message and rejected Jesus Christ as the Messiah are not going to be able to participate in this eternity that those who will respond. And so Jesus had to extend this invitation not only to the Jews but to the Gentiles. And to the whole known world at the time. And the apostles took this message and they took it to the highways and the byways. They actually used the roads the Roman Empire built to advance their empire to advance the kingdom of God on earth. Urge anyone that you can find to come so that the master's house will be full. I'm going to describe this just a little bit for us. If you know, if you know this story, maybe you went to you know, heard it when you were a child in, in, in church, or if you don't know the story, let me, let me give you a little explanation. Jesus is the master. In this story, Jesus is the master, and he has set up an amazing banquet called eternity. And he did this on behalf of his father. He set up this table, and he sent out invitations. And those who first responded were his disciples. They got to come to this table and partake of this salvation that can only come through him. And he made those disciples his first servants. And he gave those first servants invitations. And he said, go into all the world and take this message, take this invitation so that my father's house will be full. And anyone, listen, friends, anyone who has, has not received salvation are those who are receiving the invitation. And maybe we aren't physically blind or, or, or lame, but I'm telling you, spiritually we were. And this invitation reached our hand, and when we responded and we said yes to Jesus, we all got a seat at the table. But at some point when we read this parable from Jesus, this lesson from Jesus, there has to be something that kicks in for us because we who have responded to the gospel 
are no longer those who are the invited. We are the servants who are taking out the invitations. And I really believe that the church in America, and I'm not saying necessarily you here at Impact Rock, I know what's happening at Restoration LA, but I think that the church in America is too consumed with her seat at the table than they are about sending out these invitations on behalf of our master. And Jesus is saying, I don't want you to worry about your seat at the table. Your seat at the table is secure. I'm putting invitations in your hands, and I want you to take these invitations to the highways, the byways, to the hedges. I mean, the hedges would be somewhere here in Colorado. So that my father's house will be full. Because the father's will is that one should perish. And the son's purpose on this planet was to seek and save those who were lost. And those he chose to to be his his apostles were were, were commissioned to go and to make disciples and teach them to obey all that he commanded, which included going into all the world. I think we're so consumed with our place at the table. I think we're so consumed with, with, with me and my needs. And I'm telling you, You are here because you want something from Jesus. And I promise you, if you've been here long enough, you know that Jesus has something for you every day. And because Jesus has something and has given you something and your salvation is already secure, I'm telling you, we have to get rid of this orphan spirit that we carry that there's not going to be enough food at the table for us. It's a bountiful meal. It, it, I mean, the, it's a plentiful meal. If you've ever been to a Hispanic gathering, there's always more than enough food. There's enough. And there's room. What are we doing with these invitations that we have been given? The Lord wants his house to be full. The Lord wants his house to be full. I don't know about you, but I like getting what I paid for, right? How many of you like getting what you paid for? That's why I like Costco. Something goes wrong, I take it back, I get a new one. Unless you're one of those scandalous people who takes back like a half-eaten cake or something like that. I've seen people do weird things. Like, have you seen that? Like they just take back like, like they eat half the cake and then they take it back and like they want a refund. I'm like, you guys ate half that cake. You're trying to get. But we want what we paid for. We go through a drive-thru and they, you know, forget something. Oh, it doesn't matter if we drove 40 minutes home. We'll drive back to get what we paid for. If I can be serious, our father wants what he paid for. Our father wants what he paid for. And it was paid for in blood by a brutal torturous crucifixion of his son Jesus on a cross. He wants what he paid for. And as his commissioned followers, it is our job to go and get it. It is our job to go and gather. It's our job to go and invite. And I'm telling you, we are so consumed with our own stuff that we don't see what's happening. We need a paradigm shift from heaven. We need, to, we need heaven to invade our lives and, and, and to, to remind us the value of sinners. That all heaven rejoices. I'm in. I'm one of the 99. I'm not lost. I'm saved. My eternity is secure in Christ Jesus. 
but there are some who are not. I wanna, I'm going to try to close with this story. And a couple years back, I was in um, South Carolina um, doing some ministry stuff. and I was in a hotel room, and my wife Vanessa calls me, and she starts, and she has an excited voice, and she starts, she says, they have a baby for us. And I'm like, what? <laughs> like, so if you know anything about us, we have three, um, we call them our first batch, three of our, our natural children. And then we've adopted two more. At this time, we had adopted two more already. And so Judah and Mackenzie are now 11 and 8. And at the time, this is two years ago, so 9 and 6. And so she's, she called, like, they have a baby for us. And just a little bit of background, um, my wife had been praying um, about another baby for our family. And she, as she was wrestling with the Lord about it, knowing that I, you know, was going to be, you know, pretty stretched by it, um, the Lord had told her, like, I- I'm going to work on Jody's heart. Like, you just be praying. I'm going to take things off of Jody's plate. I'm going to give him the capacity, you know, to, to, to take on another life. So she, she is praying. If you don't know anything, uh, if, you, well, if you don't know my wife, when my wife prays, things happen. <laughs> it's, 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 yeah, so... So she's praying for this baby, and there's a, there's a really cool connection between it. I can't get into all of it, but um, so she says they have a baby for us, and I'm like, oh, Lord, <laughs> okay. I'm like, okay, like, what does this mean? You know, I'm on the other side of the country. I'm in a hotel room, and she says, yeah, but we only have one, ans- one hour to answer them. I'm like, we have an hour? Like, what? I mean, if you know anything about the foster system and babies, like, when babies enter the foster system, they are like, highly desirable. I mean, foster families or who who may be wanting children of their own, I mean, they're just in line for, for babies. And so um, somehow, I, I don't know, th- th- these, this beautiful baby was being presented to us as an option. So Vanessa says, you have an hour, and I'm like, well, give me 59 minutes to pray, <laughs> right? <laughs> and I, I promise you, I took 59 minutes. I got on my face in that hotel, and I just began to cry out to the Lord, like, Lord, like, another kid? Like, I'm a pastor. I don't make a lot of money. Like, we, you know, we have five kids now. We've done foster care, and it was brutal. I mean, it stretched us. It, it spread us so thin as a family. And, and Lord, we're just getting to an amazing place with our kids. You want to add to that mix, it's going to be hard, God. I mean, to add another life. I mean, we have five babies already. I mean, I know we're a good Mexican family, but Lord, I mean, So I'm being vulnerable with, with Jesus, right? I mean, if it was a natural baby, if Vanessa called me and said, I'm pregnant, I would have been like, oh, Lord. <laughs> First, because I had a vasectomy. I'd be like, good Lord, like, jeez, Louise. But anyways, so I'm on my face, and this is what Jesus asks me. Can you love her? For one day. Can you love this baby girl for one day? I said, Lord, you know I love babies. I can love a baby for one day. He's like, then that's all I'm going to ask you to do. Each and every day. One day. So I call Vanessa, I think on the hour mark. <laughs> I'm like, tell him yes. Tell him yes. 
So she calls, she calls them. It's like July 4th, I think, or July 2nd or something. She was born on July 2nd, so I think it's July 4th they called us. Yeah, I was on, I was on Independence Day. So then she calls and they said, okay, well, yeah, when could you come get her? And so we had a vacation planned anyways. We went on, the, we said, hey, can we pick her up on this day? We had like a 10-day vacation or something. Um, and so this beautiful family held her for, you know, that 10 days. And then we went and picked up Macy Ray, um, so whose adoption will be final on October 19th. Um, but listen, listen to this. Something else that took place besides my insecurity and, and, and not knowing if I had a room or the capacity to, to love more is we had to come home and talk to our kids. And so, as I said, we, we went through a, a, you know, a brutal you know, four-year foster care with, with our first two that we adopted. I mean, it was, it was hard. I mean, not, the kids weren't hard, the process. I mean, there's social workers, and then there's inspections, and then there's visits. And I mean, it, it's, it's messy. It's not easy. And so when we sit down with the kids and we tell them, hey, we're getting another baby, Judah and Mackenzie, who have been adopted, were ecstatic. They were just like, another, I mean, the only thing they were disappointed about was she wasn't going to be a boy, right? But I'm telling you, she is made up for more than three of boys. I mean, she is, she is wild. I mean, she, she, right? So they were ecstatic, and here's why. They know her story. They know what it was like to be adopted. They know what it was like to not have a family and then to have a family. And, and, and honestly, even them experiencing her story, it has helped them with their story and knowing like, how much God is capable of doing when he puts the lonely in family. It is, it, it's been the most beautiful thing to watch. And this, this isn't a knock on my older kids because as I told you before, I was struggling. One of our older kids, and I'll just help Ezekiel out. It wasn't him. Um, <laughs> was worried. Like, yo, like, we're maxed out as a family already. Like, we, we, man, when we took on the other two, it was hard. Like, we, I mean, you're, you, as parents, your love was spread thin for us. You know, us three who have been your kids and we, we helped you plant the church and, and, and all of the things that we, we, we lead a church and that's not easy. And then we started adopting and, and, and then that hasn't been easy. Like, it, like there was concerns. And, and here's what it was, honestly, friends, like it is for so many of us. They were worried about their position. They were worried about their seat at the table. And here's the thing, friends, our seat is secure. And we had to tell our kids, your seat is secure. You're always going to be our children. We love you equally. And I know it may seem like we're spread thin. And I know it may seem like if this thing grows, if this family grows, if this church grows, that the dynamics of the attention that I might receive is going to change. And so I want it to stay small and intimate. And I want it to be just about us so that we can care for each other and love on each other. But I'm telling you, friends, there's an economy of heaven that we need to be paying attention to. And there's, there's orphans out there who need to be adopted into this family. And what's amazing about the adoption process, I've told you this in the past, is that when you sign on that line and you sign your name on there, you vow before God that these new children that you are invited into your family get equal inheritance to your natural children. And then they get new names. This is what happens for all of us. And I think sometimes we forget 
We forget that we were adopted into this family. We forget that we were also the ones who needed a, a home. We forget that Jesus also changed our name and our identity. And we've been so comfortable at the table, we're forgetting all of those who are out there who have not been invited in. The Lord wants his house to be full. And you have been commissioned to make that happen. It's not a gifting. It's a mandate. And it starts with very simple, friends. Each one, bring one. Who's in your sphere of influence? Who has God placed on your heart? What family member? What niece? What nephew? What mom? What dad? Who out there is eternity is bound and destined for a place called hell, eternal separation from God? Who? And then here's the other thing I'm going to leave with you, and I know this might sound harsh and it might be in your face. What are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? Impact Rock, this family is a beautiful demonstration of God's heart. I know how this church loves people. I know how this church loved you. As, as I've talked to your leadership, I mean, just the, the, the hearing I asked this, the leadership, how, what do you love about this church? It was like its ability to get messy. Its ability to love us through our mess. Its ability, Impact Rock, you know how to get messy. But are you going to allow some other crazy kids to come in and get messy with you? It's God's heart. We all want messy churches until messy people show up. Do you have room? Is there room at this table? Is there room at this table? Mark and Kara, I really believe that the Lord wants to expand this table. I mean, I just see this beautiful countryside like kind of it feels like a wedding feast you know I, I, I you know i'm not one of those pinterest people but i'm sure like they have like these pictures of these barn tables that extend beautifully with these cloths and just these country orchard feasts just laid out and i'm telling you it's going deep and wide and i see you seated seated at the center of this table able to connect to the left and to the right, and I see this eldership team coming alongside of you and taking their place at this table, and the invitation is more and more, and here's what's happening. That table is extending, and it's extending, and it's extending. Is there room in your hearts for that? Because if there is, I need you to prepare, because it's about to get messy. In such a good way. (laughs) In such a good way. Can you guys stand with me this morning? The dual purpose of the church is to equip saints for the works of service. The ministry that takes place in the life of this church is services unto the Lord. Men and women, young adults and children get equipped in the areas of Jesus. But listen, friends, it's not just for us to to have this love fest amongst ourselves. This love has to go beyond our walls. Jesus had to leave heaven. He had to abandon his natural habitat 
in order to bring those who are destined for separation from God eternal. And I'm telling you, friends, the dual thing is to be equipped for the works of service and for this church to go out into the highways and the byways and find God's kids. It's not an option, and it's not a gifting. It's a mandate. Will you answer that call? You have his presence. You have his power. You have his word, and you have his spirit. And here's, friends, you have God's permission. Will you answer the call? Will you answer the call? Jesus, I pray for your sons and daughters. I pray that you remind us that once we were not a people, once we were not a holy nation set apart, but because we have received you, Christ Jesus, into our hearts now, we are a people, we are a holy nation, a royal priesthood. And we get to wave the banner of King Jesus in every, every city, every town, every village, in every arena of our lives, in school, at work. And yes, Lord, there's cultural fear that is attached to that because we can be rejected. But Jesus, I pray that by your spirit we will have a paradigm shift about the economy of heaven. That one life matters more than us 99 who gather in our buildings worshiping you because at the end of the day this earthly world is finite by your spirit Lord I pray that paradigm shift comes quickly in each of us let it come quickly Lord let the urgency come that we will be urgent to tell people about you everywhere everywhere I rebuke fear I rebuke inadequacy those who feel disqualified and rebuke the lies and the shame that comes with it. Lord, I pray that even now you are putting your words on the lips of your sons and daughters. Come and meet a man who transformed my life. Come and meet a man who brought salvation to my life. Come and meet a man I call Lord and Savior. Let it be so in Jesus' name. Lord, extend this table. May this church never be worried about the resources that are going to be necessary to feed the sheep that are about to flood into the life of this church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.